Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hey, folks. Another week of news to make sense of. Two tragic mass shootings on Saturday and Sunday in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, have left 29 people dead and dozens injured, reviving calls for stricter gun laws. California has passed a bill that would force presidential candidates to release their tax returns in order to appear on the state's 2020 primary ballot. And John Radcliffe withdraws his name for consideration to be the director of national intelligence. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider podcast. Each week, we break down the news and take stock of what's happening. Today, we are unsealing a clip from the most recent episode in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. One of the things I was struggling with yesterday is that when we talk about gun regulations, we always assume that the burden of proof is essentially not on the person who wants the gun, right? And, you know, we see this a lot in government and in law, which is the question is, you know, whose responsibility is it? Like, if I want a driver's license, the burden of proof is on me to go into the government and show them that I'm a reasonable driver, I understand the laws, I take a written test, I take a driver's test, I have to go through this process to show I should get this. And then, by the way, I have to pay the money, get my picture taken, and then Five years later, I have to do it again because I have to prove to them that I'm still someone who can drive. And if I need glasses, I need glasses. Right. But driving, people would say in response to you, is not a constitutional right. But the Constitution doesn't say who bears the burden, right? And the Constitution says the right to to carry and bear arms. And, you know, putting aside agreements or disagreements about um, whether or not the Supreme Court should have strengthened the Second Amendment— as it did not so long ago, the bottom line is that there are so many examples where you and I were both top secret cleared. There is a very thorough investigation into our backgrounds. And beyond the people we give them, they go out and knock on neighbors' doors. They talk to everyone they can. There's a lack of vetting on gun licenses that, and and it's intentional in many places, but I think we have to, you know, beyond even just talking about the regulations that I do think matter and would make sense, I also think there's a real question of, you know, you want a gun license, okay, but what's the process by which it would be reasonable for us to give it to you? Because many of these folks, I believe, if there was even the slightest vetting, they would be knocked out. If it was more than just walking in and paying money, they would be knocked out. To your point, it is different than a driver's license, but look, a car can be a deadly thing. A gun can be a deadly thing. And it's one of those conversations I think we need to have. I'm not saying it's going to change tomorrow, but I do think there is a problem in the way we're looking at this politically because the right has framed the issue in such a powerful way that even the conversation about the regulations I have a real question of whether or not this whole issue needs to be reframed. And, I, and I'm not sure that the burden of proof is the right way to reframe it. But I wanted to just sort of ask your thoughts on that, because in some ways, we're playing on their playing field when we're talking about these issues. We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. 
This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must stop or substantially reduce this, and it has to begin immediately. Cultural change is hard, but each of us can choose to build a culture that celebrates the inherent worth and dignity of every human life. That's what we have to do. So, so I'm an advocate for lots of these gun laws and gun reforms, and I'm a resident of the state of New York that has, you know, pretty rigorous gun licensing provisions. So all these things you're talking about, like that takes place in New York, but people would say in response to your argument, well, that's done on a state-by-state basis. And in New York, the decision is made and the courts have upheld as not an infringement of the constitutional right under the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, these common sense licensing practices, but in other places they don't. So to the extent you're saying this conversation maybe should extend into the Congress and federal legislation of licensing, Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe it's not. I think that's a lot more difficult to do, and there's a little bit less support of that probably, depending on the state you're talking about, and there may be less support for that federally than for some other things. I I take your point, but I think also people would say, to the extent it's a constitutional right, and not everyone loves that that's a constitutional right, that, that the better analogy is not necessarily driving a car for which you have no constitutional right or becoming, you know, a U.S. attorney or someone else or getting a security clearance for which there is no constitutional right but rather speech or voting. And in those circumstances, and I have to think about it a little bit more based on the analogy you were using, you know, the, the burden, if that's the right way to talk about it, and usually that's the way we talk about, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal trial, not in the exercise of a right. Generally speaking, you have a right to free speech, and you don't have to pass some test uh, or show that your speech is going to be smart or wise or productive uh, before you have the right to, to exercise, you know, that privilege under the First Amendment. And so, you know, the difference between America and all these other countries that people sometimes miss, and, they, they, and they're in good faith that they're making these arguments. You know, in New Zealand, there was this massacre, this terrible massacre, and overnight, as everyone points to, they changed the law. Well, New Zealand doesn't have a Second Amendment, and these other countries have not exalted the ownership of guns and the right to bear arms to the same degree that this country has, but that's the reality we live with. So, so some of these things are very difficult to do because there is a thing called the Second Amendment, right? So I want to I want to agree and disagree. I want to agree with you that it's as a constitutional amendment, there's not that many of them and they're important. And so constitutional amendments are part of the fabric of American society. Okay. So again, even conceding that, think about the First Amendment which we just talked about in free speech. Yes, you and I have the right to say um to say what we want to say, but there are limits. And when it turns into hate speech, that is not allowed. You and I could be in a movie theater and say terrible things about someone, and that's completely allowed. We can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater, again, because there are limits. And I think the question is, the the the, the way, and, and I don't have the exact answer, but the framing of this as it's an absolute right that's very hard to regulate, and that states do it one by one, I think we have to reframe that. And the other point I would make, and you make a great point about New York, which has really strong gun laws, um, where I was AG in New Jersey, has really strong gun laws. In both of those states, four out of five guns, illegal guns that are recovered in the states, those states come from other states. Somewhere so it, else, yes. It's, and, and, you know, the pipeline is Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of other places that supply, Mississippi, a lot of other places that supply unlawful guns. And even in, you know, we saw one of the weapons used in a mass shooting recently was purchased 
purchased in Nevada that has laxer gun laws. And so we have to think about this as a national problem because as federal crime always considers, people cross state lines and that's why you have federal offenses. And so I think I think we have to sort of think about, you know, are we making a mistake by going down a road where the framing is kind of already set or do we need to reframe it? Now, let's go back to the politics of this because you and I, I think you worked in the Senate at the same time. Do you remember the vote on the Senate floor? And this is going back, I don't know if it was 2006, maybe 2005, where they passed the amendment to one of the bills that would not allow gun manufacturers to be sued. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah. I remember, and I think I was on the Senate floor that day, and I could vividly recall standing there and thinking, so we've we've now essentially given immunity to gun manufacturers that in any mass shooting, they have no liability. And I remember standing on the Senate floor and thinking, how can this happen in the United States Senate? And I think it's a it's a really fair question for the American public to be asking, which is how can Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, and the Republicans are in control of the Senate now, how can he be stopping these reforms from being passed? Because I, I believe that the Democratic House of Representatives would pass um, additional gun regulations. They, they have. H.R. 8 has a number of sensible gun regulations. And when you talk about how can Mitch McConnell do this, let's just remind everyone that Mitch McConnell held up and blocked the confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee lawfully and appropriately nominated by Barack Obama many months before an election, because that's what Mitch McConnell does. And this whole issue of, of how we think about the gun laws and whether there are reasonable restrictions that are okay, I think there's no human being even the most ardent Second Amendment supporter who actually disagrees with that when you put to them the following example. Pete Buttigieg has, has said it this way. Look, everyone has a right to have a water balloon, and no one has a right in America to have a nuclear weapon. Those are the two you know, extremes of what you know, a, a right to bear arms might mean, and we just need to think about how to draw it more carefully. Um, one, one other thing just to raise, Preet, uh, we've talked a couple times about 8chan and the social media, the sort of posting board that people have used. And in New Zealand, the shooter there had posted his manifesto on 8chan on this website before the shooting. Here in El Paso, the shooter also posted his manifesto. I think it was like 19 minutes before the first 911 call came. Um, he posted his manifesto online on 8chan. Something pretty extraordinary happened last night because the company that was essentially, when you have web websites like this, it is often the case that people who want to take them down, hackers, and you know that they, they will make a concerted effort to flood the websites with um, requests that essentially you know, crush the site. And you can think about, you know, in your own lives, think about, you know, the day after Thanksgiving when everyone's doing online shopping and some of the websites crash, they just can't handle the volume. And so there are these web providers essentially that provide what's called DDoS protection and they stop, um, they stop this from being able to happen to websites. And that company that was providing that protection to 8chan said yesterday that they would no longer provide that protection. And so, uh, you know, it, it basically appears that 8chan will be taken down. That doesn't mean that there isn't another site that will come in its place. But, you know, one of the things I was struck by in reading about the sort of use of the internet this way is that it is afforded lone wolves and people with extremist views to find a community and to egg one another on. And, you know, there's even been reporting about people sort of wanting to top other mass shootings. And so I think it's just an important 
piece to think about how technology and the internet is a part of this. And, you know, where do you draw the line? And how do we think about this? And so, you know, I, I, and by the way, 8chan, the company that provides the protection, the protection against hacking, they did not stop after New Zealand, after 51 people were murdered there. They did stop yesterday. Yeah, but here's the perverse thing about the macabre timing of the last two shooting incidents. These things happen every few days, every few weeks, and the numbers are mind-boggling, right? There's something about the fact that there was a mass shooting on Saturday afternoon, and then 13 hours later, there was another mass shooting. And, you know, for, for good or ill, the compound effect of those things on the same weekend and in the same news cycle has, I think, caused more people to think about this, more people to take stock, the HN guy to take that action, the president to make, you know, a, perhaps a better speech than he's made in a while, people talking about having the Senate come back and think about these bills passed in the House. All of that activity, I hate to say it, probably would not have happened had there been the one incident. And so it's 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 terrible and awful to think that it sort of seems to require uh, not just a mass shooting, but, you know, a really particularly awful one, whether it's Parkland where kids are killed or this weekend where, where two things happen in two different cities in two different states, thousands of miles apart, that causes people t- to take action. And, and it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be necessary, but it kind of is. Yes, and I would even add the Gilroy Garlic Festival into that, yes. that it was sort of yes. the drumbeat of one weekend there's this mass shooting, then the next weekend there's two mass shootings. And someone said last night that there's been more mass shootings this year than there have been days of the year. There have been an extraordinary number of mass shootings in 2019. And I think you're right that the three coming so close together have really galvanized our attention um, onto this problem. And also, frankly, you know, the Garlic Festival in California is a social event that families attend. Walmart, a lot of families were there doing back-to-school shopping. In Dayton, at that shooting, it was at nighttime. A lot of people were out having fun. And so I think there's also a sense of, you know, and, and there always is in my mind with the mass shootings that it could have been any one of us at those events or those places. And obviously, they're targeted for specific reasons, those specific locations by the by the murderers. But yeah. it's really important to note that I think that there is a sense among the public that, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. Can I make a point about both shootings relating to something you mentioned in passing earlier, and that's open carry laws and the absurdity of it and the craziness of it. I saw a former ATF agent on television this weekend describe to me what's a chilling scenario. And that is, you have a bunch of families sitting in a restaurant with windows in Texas or somewhere else where there's a very liberal open carry policy. And you have a guy getting out of his car, walking towards the entrance of the restaurant. And the guy is strapped. And he's got a long gun and he's clearly he's got ammunition on him. And he's walking intently towards the front door of the restaurant. Now, in the old days, before you had so many open carry states, people would call 911, the cops would come, and he would prevent what might be potentially a mass shooting. But there's no way, there's no way in a state that allows a person to walk openly with firearms like that to know if the person is coming in to get uh, an omelet or if he's coming in to shoot everyone in the restaurant. And that's kind of frightening. And the, the related point is when you think about Dayton, and, and so far there's been no evidence to suggest that that was a hate crime or domestic terrorism. Apparently the shooter there also killed his sister before he went to the location where he killed nine people. And remember... He killed nine people in a minute flat, and there were police nearby. And by the way, in El Paso, there were people who were armed, and as you say, it created some confusion and some, I think, wrong reports about 
there being multiple shooters, the point of which is this idea that we're going to solve the problem by giving a good guy a gun to take down a bad guy with a gun, extending even to teachers who are, who are supposed to be educating our kids on earth science and biology and chemistry and English, that when you have someone who is capable of killing nine people in a minute, even when officers are nearby, and even in circumstances where there are citizens who have weapons, it seems quite silly to me. Yes, and and I will say this, the Dayton officers, the Dayton police officers did an extraordinary job to get there in less than a minute and to stop the shooter. And it is really true when you hear law enforcement folks talk about what do you do when you get called to the scene of a shooting and there's 10 people holding guns and sort of running around with weapons, you have to identify who the shooter is. And, you know, if you're if you're not sure who's who, it's very, very difficult to respond in that situation. It creates chaos. And the last thing law enforcement wants in that kind of a very difficult, fluid situation is to not be able to quickly identify who the shooter is. So going back to what laws we should pass separate from things that deal with guns and the proliferation of guns and open carry and background checks and red flag laws and, and all the rest, there's this question of why we don't have a domestic terrorism statute. People get a little bit confused when they see folks talking about uh, the FBI investigating something as domestic terrorism. That's a definition. I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com insider and become a member. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.